Um, but we're on page 38 in our sermon guidebook. And if you want to go over this um, tonight around the dinner table with some friends or some family, there's questions here. There's also a blank page on page 40 where you can take some notes. But let me pray for us as we turn to the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the gift of preserving scriptures that were written thousands of years ago, Lord. So many books just faded away in the dust of the Middle East. Um, but the Jewish people and then the Christian people, Lord, and a lot of people after them have preserved for us your word. And we are thankful for it. And we, we, we bring our chairs up to it with an appetite now, Lord. And we ask that you would feed us with a rich, heavenly banquet from the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. November 21st, 1945, was the second day of the Nuremberg trials. 22 Nazi officials were on trial for abominable crimes against humanity. Justice Robert H. Jackson stood to give the opening address. In the prisoner's dock sit 20-odd broken men. These prisoners represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies have returned to dust. We will show them to be living symbols of racial hatreds, of terrorism and violence, and of the arrogance and cruelty of power. They have so identified themselves with the philosophies they conceived and with the forces they directed that any tenderness to them is a victory and an encouragement to all the evils which are attached to their names. Civilization can afford no compromise with the social forces which would gain renewed strength if we deal ambiguously or indecisively with the men in whom those forces now precariously survive. How do Justice Jackson's words make you feel? No tenderness, no compromise, no mercy, not for these men. Do, do the crimes that these men have committed, racial hatred, terrorism and violence, the abuse of power, do they merit such decisive and severe, no mercy allowed, justice? In a case like this, our hearts tend to say, yes, violence like this must be answered with decisive, severe, and white-hot judgment. Preach on, Justice Jackson, we all say. As we'll soon see, the situation preceding the flood in Genesis 6 through 8 is not so different than this trial scene. God stands before a sea of violence, destroying his good creation. So what should God do? The, the event of the flood is our topic today, and it introduces us to the judgment of God, what he in fact does before violence. 
And the judgment of God is something we need to come to terms with and we need to better understand. Now, the account of a great flood, which happened in the cradle of civilization, is echoed in traditions of hundreds of cultures from all over the world, the Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, China, India, even the Americas. And many who study this topic say that this is precisely what you would expect if such an event actually happened. It would linger in our most ancient memories. And indeed, read some literature and you find that it does. But more important for us as a church is to notice what so many men in the Bible say about the flood. Isaiah, Ezekiel, the psalmist, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, Jesus. They all refer to the flood, they all refer to Noah, and they all do so treating it as a great cataclysmic historical event. And they see it, moreover, as something of great import for how we understand who God is and how we understand how his judgment works. The flood account, it unfolds over three chapters in Scripture, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. It has a very straightforward plot line. Genesis 6 introduces tension. God's good creation has become corrupt, filled with violence and wickedness. God announces that he will act in judgment with a great flood. One man, Noah, is found to be righteous, and through Noah and an ark, God will preserve his creation. That's Genesis 6. In Genesis 7, the deluge comes. For 40 days, every storehouse of water spends every last drop. For 150 days, the land then lies submerged under a watery abyss, while this little tinderbox of wood with Noah and others in it floats atop the waters with everyone, as it says in 7.16, shut inside the ark. In Genesis 8, a wind starts to blow. The waters begin to recede, taking another 150 days to fully retreat. The ark's inhabitants then disembark. The earth stands cleansed from evil and violence. Or so it seems. Noah makes an offering of thanks to God. God promises never to send such a flood again. What is God teaching humanity? What is he teaching us through this event? It's clear enough that it's about judgment. It's a vivid and sobering statement that God will not abide violence and human rebellion indefinitely. The God of creation, he will judge the earth. And at a time when people seem so offended by God's judgment, yet simultaneously are so interested in the judgments of justice, well, it seems important to understand what the message of the flood is. Even more significantly, however, the flood account is about more than judgment. It's also and more deeply about grace. God's judgment comes hand in hand with his grace, you cannot have one without the other. If judgment is no threat, grace has no point. So you might as well stop talking about it. 
Perhaps the most profound point of the story, in fact, is not the water, but the ark. As God provides a way to pass through his judgment. And even for a man, an imperfect man, as we'll see, like Noah. I believe the message of the flood in the ark is this. We can neither pass over nor pass up God's judgment. But we can pass through it if we will let him show us the way. This will become clear as we consider these three things that the flood teaches us about the judgment of God. God's judgment is just, it's purifying, and it's surprising. It's just, it's purifying, and it's surprising. The scene in Genesis 6, just before the deluge, it's not so unlike the Nuremberg trial. God stands as judge before a people with abominable violence on their hands. I mean, consider what has unfolded up to this point. God's loving act of creation was met with Adam and Eve's rebellion, with Cain's murder of his brother, and now, as it's recorded in Genesis 6, verse 11, with violence filling the earth. Don't miss the verb, filling. Back in Genesis 1, God had commanded humans to what? Fill the earth. Fill it with my good purposes. Fill it with my loving care. Fill it with my image. And what they fill it with, Genesis 6, is violence and wickedness. And in Genesis 1, God, he looks upon his creation and he bursts forth almost in song and he says, Behold, God saw his creation and it was very good. In Genesis 6, God looks again upon his creation, but what he sees is nothing but spreading contagion. Chapter 6, verse 5 and 12 paint a harrowing picture. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh not some of it, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The diagnosis is bleak and all-encompassing. Wickedness, great. The intention of every heart, only and continually evil. All flesh corrupted. We can't really comprehend such a situation because we've never lived in a world like this. I mean, humanity has fallen, and we understand this. But at the time of the flood, if we're following the biblical chronology, at the time of the flood, there was no law. There was no Bible. There were no systems of justice. This is sinful humanity without breaks or bumpers. You might imagine the impression this diagnosis about humanity made on those Israelites who were the first to receive the book of the law of Moses. Where in this book, Genesis happens, and shortly after that, you have, you have God giving people the law. This is happening in the wilderness. You, you, can, you can imagine that they're reading this story in light of getting the law, and they're, they're, they're realizing that human beings left to their own devices, they do not evolve, but devolve. 
We desperately need grace and common grace of good laws, good systems of justice, and the stability of traditions of morality. In and of themselves, these things, they don't fix us, but they keep anarchy at bay. So an Israelite reading this, after 40 years in the wilderness, as Moses is trying to give them the Ten Commandments, is meant to understand that law and order, it's a great gift. And without it, we devolve with sin speeding our way. And then comes the flood. But the main point, the main point of these pre-flood conditions of all the violence and wickedness, all flesh being corrupted, the main point that this text is making is this. God's judgment in the flood is just. If there is a problem raised by Genesis 6, it is not the problem of God's badness. As though God's judgments here are capricious and cruel. Rather, the problem that's coming to the surface in Genesis 6 is the problem of God's goodness. Can God be righteous and a good being while allowing human behavior like this to persist. For God to not act in judgment would be a greater miscarriage of justice than if Justice Robert Jackson would have stood and opened the Nuremberg trials with the great argument for leniency. We should take it easy on the defendants. People do make mistakes. Let them go. Let live and let live. Let them find their own truth. They'll eventually straighten up. We would find this abhorrent. So too, if God stood aloof before the violence in Genesis 6, we could no longer call him good. And certainly, we couldn't call him a righteous judge. But let's imagine a little further. What if God had done nothing? in Genesis 6 and 8? What if he would fulfill our modern wishes of a God who's just there to bless, never to judge? What if he just lets humanity continue to develop according to desires of their own twisted natures? What if God just just decides to let the strong survive, fight it out, let each person live their own truth? What if he decided not to oppress people with things like absolute truth or real consequences for their actions? What if God was like this? Had God not acted in Genesis 6, humanity, and this is the point the passage is making, humanity either would have killed itself off or we all would have been born into a far darker world, one we can scarcely imagine. God's judgment enacted decisively and severely, it's necessary for holding our world together. Miroslav Volf is a Christian theologian and a professor at Yale. His writings on God's forgiveness and God's justice are profound. Having grown up in war-torn parts of Croatia and Serbia, Wolf approaches the idea of God's judgment from a real experience of human violence. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he addresses what he sees as as the popular but problematic idea that God is only love, no judgment. 
He says such an idea might work in the quiet of a suburban home. But if one imagines speaking of such an idea in a war zone, with listeners whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been abused, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, then the idea of a God who never acts with vengeance or judgment would be intolerable. Wolf's point is important, and it helps us know how to read the story of the flood. If there is no God who will one day punish evil and the evildoer, then we are left with two unbearable options. Option one, the sufferer, the offended, must simply live with the eternal fact of injustice. Things will never be made right, so stop complaining about it. Option two, the offended, the sufferer, can take matters into their own hands and return violence for violence, a scenario, Wolf notes, that leads to an endless cycle of bloodshed. The biblical teaching about God's judgment, it's a hard truth, but it's a necessary truth. We cannot afford to pass over it, for it governs our very own sense of justice, and it makes possible hope and forgiveness. We need to know, and so Genesis speaks, that God will judge evil. And he will do so decisively, and he will do so severely. Later in Scripture, we learn that the flood foreshadows a great final judgment, when at the end of time, every person who has ever lived will be immersed in the waters of God's perfect justice. Complete cleansing, no crime, no violence, no wrong, no ill-spoken word will pass over God's judgment, but all will be submerged beneath it. Below we will see how God makes a way to show us his grace even in the midst of total justice. But point one, God's justice is just. It's not capricious, it's not cruel. And it forms the very backbone of our need for justice. Our second point, it, it has to do with the ultimate purpose of God's judgment. We'd be mistaken if we thought that God judges for the sake of destruction. As though he's an angry tyrant ripping apart the house. A careful reading of the flood account makes it clear that, that God's judgment, it aims at preservation. It, it aims at purification of that which he loves. He, his desire is not to destroy, but to make new. Much of the passage speaks of God's desire to preserve and purify. Most obvious is, is his choosing of Noah and the building of the ark to preserve Noah's family and the animals. Noah stands out when we meet him in, in great contrast to the rest of humanity. Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, Noah's righteousness, it doesn't mean that he was sinless or perfect. And his life after the flood points this out. But what it does mean is that Noah alone 
was a man who amidst a world gone awry was striving to know God and walk with him. You know, often in the Bible, we come across moments in time where there's just a small remnant of godly people left. Sometimes just a single woman or a single man. You can think back to Isaiah's sermon on Esther from last week. And one of the points that the Bible often makes is God can do incredible things through just one person who will stand for him. And so one little lesson you might want to take away from Noah, especially if you're a teenager or a kid in the room, is, man, when you find yourself in a situation in school or the world where it seems like nobody cares about the things of God, think of Noah. You can be that one woman or one man that is for the Lord, and he can do mighty things through such a person. When the waters do come, Noah, he's got his family and his animals all in the ark because he's obeyed the Lord. No questions asked. And what appears is a microcosm of creation in a little wooden box atop the waters. Man, woman, all the animals like a little Eden being preserved. This is a sign on top of the waters that God has not given up on what he's made, nor will he ever give up on it. From the tiny ant to the towering giraffe, to the crazy looking hippopotamus, to the scary alligator, to the lions and the leopards, he loves it. He loves it. These things that seem superfluous to us, he loves these things. And so along with man and woman, he upholds that which he has made in his right hand. But it's not merely preservation that's happening. When we look more closely, we see that God's judgment is actually doing more than preserving. It's purifying. It aims at renewal, a restart. As the floodwaters recede in Genesis 8... We all of a sudden find all this language coming up that echoes the language that was used in Genesis 1 where creation happened. So for example, in Genesis 8-1, we read that God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Well, that little word for wind, it's a Hebrew word, ruach. It's the word used in Genesis 1-2 for God's spirit hovering over the waters. We're, we're meant to see God's spirit it, it once again is speaking over the waters. And what happens? The same thing that happens in Genesis 1. The wind, the Spirit of God moves and it pushes back the waters so dry land can appear. Same as Genesis 1. And then we find finally a scene with the, the, the family and the animals leaving the ark that echoes the beginning of creation. Let me read this. This is, this is Genesis 8, verse 16 through 17. See if you can hear anything that sounds like Genesis 1. God says, go out from the ark, Noah, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Does that last phrase sound familiar? It's the same thing God commanded in Genesis 1. The point is this. God's judgment aims at life the same way his creation aims at life. 
His judgment is a subcategory of his creation. Because he's the God of life and not death. God is acting in order to cleanse the world of evil so it can have a fresh start. And friends, we need to know this angle of judgment. That judgment from God is meant to cleanse This theme appears again and again in the Bible. God judges wayward Israel with 40 years in the wilderness. He judges wayward Israel with exile. And again and again, if you read the stories closely, the judgment is aiming at purifying them and restoring them. Not purifying them and restoring them, not destroying them. So this helps us think about God's judgment in our own lives. You know, God does mete out kind of mini judgments in between the beginning and the end in our own lives. The Bible calls this discipline, and it's never pleasant. However, when we understand that God's goal in this is ultimately our flourishing, it changes how we experience it. This purifying power of God's judgment reveals this important angle about his judgment that we underappreciate. His judgment now is meant to heal us and help us. His judgment can be like the words of a good doctor or coach, seeing into how we're actually doing and offering us guidance and correction. So what if you, what if you had nobody who was ever willing to correct you? Nobody ever would point out something wrong with you. Nobody ever could point out where you're being willfully blind. Or there was just nobody wise enough to perceive into you to actually give you a right judgment. What would we do? Who would we be without proper judgment? King David, after a long life where he often was surprised by the darkness of his own sinfulness, think Bathsheba, closes the great Psalm 139. Maybe he's reflecting on the time that Nathan came to bring God's judgment on his life for Bathsheba. Maybe he's reflecting on that because listen to what he says at the end of Psalm 139. You're going to hear someone who's asking to be judged. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see, God, you see because I can't, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can neither pass over God's judgment because it's the backbone of our justice, nor, we, nor can we pass up God's judgment because it's the only thing that will finally purify us. Now, we should probably point out a tension that arises at this point and see if we can resolve it. If God's, judge, if God's judgment is perfect and it's just and it's purifying, even as I note these good things about it, how can a sinner like myself endure it? I mean, if I, Sam Ferguson, if I were alive in the days of Noah, in that culture, with that gravitational pull towards wickedness, I would not have been the guy picked to be on the ark, okay? So I can't just kind of look at this judgment as an outsider asking if you can kind of give me a bath every now and then. How do we deal with the totality and perfection of God's judgment if we are sinners 
This is where it is helpful to let another writer in the Bible read the story of the flood for us. Peter. Peter introduces a third and final point about the flood and God's judgment, and it is this. God's judgment is surprising. Now, Peter was a man. You know Peter, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus. In terms of Jesus' life, I don't think anyone was closer to Jesus, really, than Peter was, with maybe John giving him a run for his money. But Peter was a man who seemed to think He could live a righteous enough life to pass through God's judgment on his own. Then, however, in an act that shocked him, maybe like David was shocked several times during his life, Peter did the thing that he said he would never do. He denied Jesus in Jesus' moment of greatest need. Peter stood a broken man. Someone who deserved a harsh judgment from their Lord. So Peter must have been quite surprised when Jesus found him when he was out fishing sometime later. And when Jesus didn't rebuke him, but in fact reinstated Peter as his friend and his follower. When Jesus even went so far as to remind Peter that what stood between them now was not animosity and shame, but was in fact love. And perhaps this is why Peter, who went on to be a great pastor, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Peter went on to write two letters to churches. Perhaps this is why Peter, in his first letter, he connects baptism, which represents passing through the waters with Jesus, being forgiven in Jesus, being raised with Jesus. Peter connects this with the flood. I want you to see this. Let Peter show you how to read the flood. This is 1 Peter 3, picking up at verse 20. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God had been patient with Peter. And just as Noah passed through the waters of judgment in the ark, Peter began to understand that he had passed through God's judgments because of his closeness and his faith in Jesus. So Peter learned this great surprise about the judgment of God. God himself, by his son, passes through the waters. Jesus, in fact, Peter would go on to understand, Jesus will stand in the courtroom wearing our sins, taking our punishment. While we then stand in the courtroom wearing his righteousness, receiving his acquittal. Peter would plead with you. He would plead with us, as he did with those early Christians. Do not try to deal with God's judgment by passing over it. And do not pass it up. But cling to Christ. And in Christ, Peter would say, 
you can pass through it. And on the other side, Peter's words, is a good conscience. Peter was surprised by the judgment of God because it was the last place where he thought he would find his grace. His grace in the face of his own son, who, by the way, is descended from the line of Noah. Now, as we move to conclude, there is a second type of surprise to the judgment of God that Peter would leave us with. And this very well may be his most important application for us. You see, Peter was aware that not only is the judgment of God surprising because it turns out to bring us grace in Jesus Christ, but the judgment of God is a surprise because we are so tempted to forget about it. Peter, he had heard Jesus liken his final coming and his great judgment to the days of the flood. So, so now this is, this is Jesus reading Noah's flood, okay? This is Jesus now. And Peter would have been listening to this. Jesus says in Matthew, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I think we have this scripture to put up. I want you to see it. Maybe we don't. Just listen to it. I, wish you, I just want you to see Noah in Jesus' mouth. This is Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, Peter realizes early in his ministry that people like some teachings of Jesus, but they don't like this one. And he realizes that they drift into disbelief, indifference, or forgetfulness about God's coming judgment. So he warns, this is in his second letter, this is Peter returning again to the flood. And this is, I think, his word for the church in America, one of his words. Peter says, scoffers will say, where is the promise of Jesus coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as though from the beginning of creation. Peter says, though, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by these very things, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by this same word, Peter says, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So I ask you, church, what do you make of Jesus and Peter's reading of the flood? What do you think they would say to us? I think they would say, friends, do not pass over or pass up the judgment of God, but realize that he right now ever since the days of Christ, is flooding the world with grace, with the gospel, with 
little men and women who walk around the planet telling people about Jesus to their own hurt, who go to places where people have never heard that there's a flood coming or that there's an ark. And through this, he's flooding the world. He's inviting people back into the ark, which is his son. And he's asking us not to pass over nor to pass up the just and purifying judgment of his, but instead, in Christ, to pass through it, even now, even today. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we have a commitment at this church, and I know I keep it imperfectly, forgive me, but our desire is to preach your whole counsel, Lord, We don't want a modern American gospel. We want Jesus's gospel. And Jesus, we love the teachings of your grace. And I pray that you would use these teachings of the Father's beautiful and perfect justice to draw us deeper into his lavish and surprising grace. And may it be shared abroad with our neighbors. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.